it's 2021. Bright new era, maybe. I don't know, actually. Has the new year dawned brightly for you in Amsterdam, Dominic Kramer? Yes, although um, I'm currently in my third or fourth wave of my fungal gnat pandemic in my apartment uh, that have taken over my houseplants. So that's kind of driving me mad. Yikes. What does that look like? Loads of tiny little flies all around my plants and next to the windows. And now they're (laughs) growing on the curtains. Ah! Sorry, it's a really disgusting description. But if anyone has any good home remedies... Then let me know. I really don't want to start using like evil fertilizer on the houseplants. That feels kind of counterintuitive. But uh, how are you, Katie? You've had more serious problems while we've been away, haven't you? Uh, only mildly. I guess my 2021 is going better so far than the end of 2020 when I finally caught the C word virus in London. Luckily, a very, very light case of it, I feel very fortunate. But it did mean that I got stuck in the house over Christmas. We literally couldn't leave the flat. So my brother had to cycle over to us on Christmas Eve and leave us half a raw chicken on the doorstep for us to cook, which was very festive. That's very sweet of him. But why was it a chicken and not a turkey? Turkey's dry. I feel like we've talked about this before. It's a boring meat. We should get rid of it. I don't really eat meat anymore. But turkey is only dry if you cook it like that. Apparently I need some more practice. Anyway, uh, all is well, and we have big plans for this podcast in 2021, which is exciting. And I'm finally back in Paris, which is nice, after managing to cross the border, which is quite hard these days, thanks to Brexit and coronavirus, uh, both things that we try not to talk about very much on this podcast. And I think we're going to try and carry on with that policy uh, as much as possible. Yes, I think we are, even though quite a lot of both things have happened over the last month and it feels a bit weird to not mention them but you've all heard enough about both those things um, and uh, suffered enough reading about them and experiencing them yourselves I'm sure so this week we are heading to Germany where a thousand and one representatives of the political party of Angela Merkel the CDU will meet this week for an online conversation to decide who is going to replace her as party leader And maybe then go on to lead the party as the candidate for chancellor in the upcoming German general election. That's coming up later in the show with our special guest Wolfgang Munchau, director of Eurointelligence. But first, as ever, shall we start this episode as we always do with our favourite segment. Hit me, who's had a good week? Good week comes from Norway this week. Norway has become the first country in the world to sell more electric cars than polluted cars. Congratulations, Norway. Congratulations. I don't think polluted cars is the technical term, but it doesn't seem to be a word that covers petrol cars, diesel cars and hybrid cars. Car experts, if there is a word for that, do let me know. But I'm going to call them polluted cars. Uh, Back to Norway, a total of 54% of the cars sold last year were fully electric, which is pretty cool. It's really quite an amazing statistic. Mm. And if you add in hybrid cars, which is the ones that have an electric motor and a traditional like diesel or petrol engine. I know what they are. Well, but people might not. I wasn't quite sure what the difference was because I don't drive very much. Um, But if you add those in, 83% of Norway's cars are electric. And that is not bad at all. How did they manage to do this? Because aren't electric cars really expensive? Yeah, so basically what they've done for years now, actually, is uh, clever incentives. So there's loads of tax incentives to buy electric cars in Norway. But there's also things like if you're driving an electric car and there's two of you in it, you're allowed in the bus lane which I personally find very appealing. Like, I love cycling in the bus lane. It makes me feel like a VIP. I actually remember this when I was in Bergen a few years ago, that Mm. it really makes a difference 
whether you have an electric car or not when I was driving to and from the airport being driven. And that, yeah, there are often two lanes, um, one with the polluted cars and one with the non-polluted cars. And uh, it's a, it seems like a really good system. I still think surely it's so expensive. How does anyone afford electric cars? Well, the thing is, Dominic, Norway is a very rich country. Oh, yeah. And that kind of gets to the crux of the matter. I think the curious thing about all of this is that it really brings out this kind of split personality that Norway has when it comes to the climate. So domestically... Norway is like super ambitious on climate change targets. They want to completely phase out the buying of polluted cars by 2025, which is really quite soon. And they've also done things like spending billions of euros helping protect rainforests around the world. Uh, And in Norway itself, almost all of the electricity comes from hydropower. So they have this tiny little carbon footprint at home. At the same time, why is Norway so rich in the first place? I hear you ask. Oil. (laughs) Thank you very much. There you go. It's not really a secret. Uh, Norway has become fantastically rich from oil and gas, almost all of which it sells to other countries. So at the same time, Norway is this leading light on climate change and also a country that is responsible for massive amounts of carbon being pumped into the atmosphere. Mm. Uh, I find it very intriguing and troubling. Yeah. These countries find it very difficult to wean themselves off the addiction of the money-making production of oil, don't they? It's interesting. I mean, some people see it as climate hypocrisy. Like, how dare Norway present itself as this amazing climate pioneer when it's done so much to pollute the rest of the planet? But I don't know. It it seems to me more like the policies of a country that is, like, rich for problematic reasons and feels really guilty about it, but also wants to stay rich. I mean, it's still exploring for more and more oil in the Arctic. But if you visit Oslo or any other Norwegian city, you won't see any of that. You'll just see loads and loads of electric cars. Have you ever been in an electric car? Yes, in Norway. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you said. Feels like a long time ago. And I don't actually own a car. I would really like an electric one, but there's just no way I'm ever going to be able to afford one. Well, I'm actually on the waiting list to get a test drive in a Citroen Ami, which is this tiny little French electric car. It's very cute. And I think you only need to be like 14 years old to drive it. Uh, So it's really fun. It's like a little toy car. And I don't think it's as expensive as the sort of normal size electric cars. Oh, that's fun. But can you drive? Uh, I can drive extremely badly. Okay, like me. (laughs) I thought I could have a practice with one of these electric cars if they give me a test drive. But everybody wants to test it out. So I fear it might be some time before I have a go on that. Um, Fun fact, on a related note... Did you know that the electric car was invented in France all the way back in the 19th century? No way. That's amazing. Is that before petrol cars were invented? I think some of the earliest French cars were electric. It didn't really work very well at the time. They had these massive non-rechargeable batteries. uh, So it wasn't very practical and the idea died out pretty quickly. But the innovation is there. So there you go. I'm just looking at when petrol cars were invented. 1885. Hmm. Yeah, around the same time. But I would very much like to try driving a more updated French electric car. So Citroen, if you're listening to this, please let me have a drive in the little tiny car. Or Tesla, if you'd like to give us a car, (laughs) that would also be great. Who's had a bad week? It's been a bad week for tourists in Amsterdam or tourists of the future in Amsterdam, because obviously there aren't that many around right now. But when they do start coming back, they'll not be able to buy weed anymore. Isn't that like the main reason that lots of, uh, specifically British people, come to Amsterdam in the first place? Yeah, and I think that's exactly why Mayor of Amsterdam, Femke Halsema, wants to pass this uh, change of rule. And if she has her way and uh, manages to make weed only available to residents of the city, then, yeah, it will be 
a big change to Amsterdam because I think for most people, when you hear the word Amsterdam, you think weed or maybe red light district, which might also be going. Femke is going wild with city reform right now. And a lot of residents are actually kind of happy about it. And in Femke's own words, yes, she is one of those politicians that people refer to by her first name. Um, she said to the Dutch public broadcaster last week, Amsterdam is an international city and we wish to attract tourists, but we would like them to come for its richness, its beauty and its cultural institutions. So, yeah, it's that old kind of icky, complicated argument of wanting the right kinds of tourists coming for the right reasons. I'm sure some would argue that the coffee shops are in themselves cultural institutions. But Femke Hasselmer is essentially trying to lessen Amsterdam's reputation as Europe's leading soft drugs tourism destination. Speaking as a local resident myself, I, I'm kind of pleased. It's not just the drugs. Uh, Femke's plans also include making the city more sustainable. She's trying to reduce the number of tourists so that there's more space for residents to walk around. She wants to help local businesses that actually provide for the residents as opposed to tourists. So not so many cheese shops, unfortunately, anymore. No! All of this will hopefully make it a nicer place for residents of Amsterdam to live after years of booming tourist numbers, which have seen locals pushed out of the centre and the centre of the city often feeling a bit like a theme park. Can I just ask you, as a resident, like the weed specifically, what kind of bad effects does that create for you are there just loads of like really really stoned british tourists walking around everywhere i have to say i don't notice like weed itself as being the cause of that i i don't look at the antisocial british tourists walking around thinking oh it's because of the weed that they're causing a problem mm. i think mainly it's just that it is so busy in the center and they have to find a way to make it slightly less busy and one of the main reasons why they haven't stopped tourists from buying weed before is because it was just assumed that the ban would create an underground or street market for weed which would rather defeat the point However, the reason why this new decision has been made is because the mayor commissioned a report which came back saying that a significant number of tourists would actually decide not to visit Amsterdam if weed was no longer available for them to buy in shops. And yeah, that was a very convincing argument to therefore stop the uh, tourists being able to buy weed. The exact timescale and implementation is yet to be sorted, but it looks like it will happen. And she's got the backing of the police and the public prosecutor's office and a lot of the public. So I think it will probably happen. Hmm. So, so what exactly are the laws around cannabis? It's something I've never really quite got. Yeah, it's actually really interesting in the Netherlands because... I think everyone just assumes that it's like totally legal to consume as much cannabis as you want. But it's actually technically illegal. It is merely tolerated if you possess fewer than five grams of uh, cannabis. And that rule's been around since it was decriminalized in 1976. And this tolerance law is actually already intended only for local residents in the Netherlands. So tourists actually aren't allowed to consume it. But in Amsterdam, there's been a long-running policy not to enforce this law, citing uh, this argument that they didn't want to drive the drugs market for tourists onto the streets. But the rules are already not quite as liberal as most people would think. And also, it's actually illegal to grow or farm cannabis. So whilst these coffee shops are allowed to sell it under strict conditions... 
the people who provide it to the shops have grown it illegally and could be prosecuted. It's a really weird policy. Mm. That is really weird. Oh, there's actually this amazing trick that the police use on snowy days sometimes to discover who's growing weed in their houses or who's got an illegal farm. Um, They drive around in residential areas and if there are any houses not covered in snow, Ah. then they go and check in that house because it often means that they've got big lamps on to heat um, the house, which is necessary for the cannabis to grow. Smart. Sneaky. Uh, and Halsmed really doesn't want to, like, end cannabis in Amsterdam. I don't think that would go down well. Um, she wants to improve the market for the local residents. And some other rules that she's planning on passing is that she wants to prevent monopolies by limiting how many of these coffee shops a chain can have. Mm-hmm. And she's also planning on introducing a quality mark which coffee shops could obtain in order to have the privilege of storing more weed on site, meaning fewer courier journeys, which would be good because journeys are often targeted for robberies. But yeah, big change in Amsterdam. Um, And as I said earlier, she's also trying to reform the red light district at the moment as well. So yeah, she's really making some big, bold decisions and we'll see what happens over the next few years. It's kind of an interesting time to be tackling over tourism, given that there isn't any tourism right now. Yeah, it's true. But I think part of it is that us local residents have realised how nice the city can be when it's not completely packed with tourists. It's been so nice walking around the centre of town um, where I live and just having space to actually walk on the pavement and not feeling like you're going to be run over by a cyclist or a tourist at any moment. Have the coffee shops actually been open during lockdown? Are they considered like an essential service? Yes, they are considered an essential service. And I actually think that was Ah. a really sensible decision because... Imagine if lockdown happened and then suddenly people were having to be forced to go cold turkey with their weeds. That would not be good. I wouldn't know, Dominic. I'm an extremely clean living person, as you know. Of course you are. (laughs) While I was stuck in quarantine over the holidays... One of the things that really cheered me up was, uh, well, one of them was Bridgerton, (laughs) the really trashy Netflix series, which we're inevitably going to talk about later. The other thing that really cheered me up was the very many emails we got announcing that people were signing up to support this podcast. Uh, If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're not, you've probably heard us talking about a website called Patreon, uh, where you can sign up to chip in a couple of euros or dollars or pounds or I think Canadian dollars as well, uh, every month to help us keep making this podcast. Uh, who are the latest amazing people to do that, Dominic? They are Ryan Nee, Lynn and Reagan Voigt, Lucky Chen, Toast, Mayana Brown, Emily, Fanny Nane, Bogdan Negrescu and Anne Vavrik. Thank you all so much for supporting us. You too could help us out and keep this podcast running by heading to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. You'll find a link in our show notes, but that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. So back in the day when we were just a baby podcast three years ago, there was this horrible period where I was in charge of all the graphic design for our website. Do you remember that time, Dominic? I don't think it was so horrible. I think you're like an untapped talent. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, maybe it's time for a career change. Um, but if you've been listening to this podcast since the early days, you may remember that we had this horrible website with a big picture that I made on Microsoft Paint showing Angela Merkel with a big rainbow behind her. Uh, We have since been able to pay a graphic designer, and I think everyone is very glad about that. Uh, But the point is, when we were first starting this podcast and thinking about 
Europeans that people would recognize. Merkel was the first person that came to mind. Um, I'm, I'm young enough, thank you very much, to not remember a Germany without her. I don't know about you, Dominic. Yeah, I'm kind of the same. She's been there for 15 years. But very soon, we're going to be entering a new era that doesn't have her in it. There are going to be German elections in September. Merkel has confirmed that she will not run for another term as chancellor. And next weekend, a thousand members of her party, the CDU, are going to be hosting an online conference to pick a new person to lead that party. That person may or may not go on to win the elections in September and take over at the head of the richest and most powerful country in Europe. But before I introduce you to this week's guests, uh, I want to ask you, Dominic, what are you going to remember about Merkel personally? Yeah, well, there are obviously like the the big famous policy decisions like welcoming refugees, but then also more controversial things like the Nord Stream pipeline that she's allowing to be built between Russia and Germany. Also just generally being queen of Europe and being the person who kind of steered us through various crises. I'm really glad that you've picked like serious policy things because I wrote down uh, really great shiny jackets and being the star of really good gifts. <laughs> like she's so funny. There's so many great gifts of her like reacting to things in really deadpan ways. That's true. I'm really going to miss that. Eye rolling and the hand diamond. Is it called the hand diamond? No, what's it called? Uh, it's called the rhombus. The rhombus. A wonderful hand gesture. But I don't know. I think my tendency is to see Merkel as a source of calm in Europe. And I think that's a, that's pretty common amongst Europeans who don't live in Germany, we see her as this kind of comforting eternal presence. But we wanted to get a slightly different perspective on the podcast this week. We thought it would be good to hear from someone who is German and someone who is a bit more critical. Wolfgang Munchau is a German journalist and the director of Eurointelligence, which is a subscription news service that offers really in-depth analysis of European politics. He is also a longtime Merkel watcher. So we thought he would be a great person to talk about what kind of a, a hole that Merkel leaves in Europe as well as how good a job she's done at running Germany and what kind of challenges are coming down the road for the person who comes next. I gather that you are perhaps not the world's biggest fan of Angela Merkel, um, but maybe we could start with the positives. What do you think are the biggest things that she's achieved in power? Well, well I'm not. you're right to say I'm not the biggest fan because of what she did to the Eurozone, which has been my primary concern. I am full of admiration for her skills as a politician, for her ability to manage the party, and she has had you know, a great many achievements to her record. She will be remembered probably for the stance she took on the refugee during the refugee crisis. That is undoubtedly an achievement. It was a gut instinct reflex at the time, um, basically saying this is the right thing to do, and she did this. This was an act of pure leadership, and I, you know, I admire her for that. I felt and I would have preferred if she had coordinated this, if she had prepared the ground, also in the domestic debate. The decision gave rise to the, to the AFD, um, a far-right party, but uh, it was the right decision, I think. The other thing where she was instrumental was the achieving a strong degree of cohesion for the EU. Uh, she was, when she came to power, she was immediately confronted or very shortly after confronted with the global financial crisis. And at the time when we all called for Eurozone banking rescues and Eurozone only uh, solutions to this, she basically insisted that the EU should be the, the framework and not the Eurozone. 
in the beginning, she even rejected Eurozone-only summits and Eurozone-only meetings. She wanted a, an EU-wide solution to this. Now, this is where my point of disagreement with her set in, that the cohesion of the EU uh, and the integration of the EU became already at that point conflicting goals. And she prioritized the cohesion to the detriment of the integration. And the Eurozone, as it stands right now, doesn't work very well. And it works extremely well for Germany, but it doesn't work at all for Italy and for Greece. And Merkel has essentially allowed that to happen, allowed the divergences to go, uh, to widen. And, um, you know, my criticism of her is essentially to allow the, the these imbalances to become, to increase with each crisis. We've seen that these balances became wider. And we will see this again with the current pandemic. Germany is better placed to handle it. I mean, Germany also has its fair share of problems, but Germany will be better placed to handle it than other countries. And there is a recovery fund, but it is not enough to make that, uh, to, to bridge that gap. It will not even be enough to slow down the divergences very much. So that's the European context. I was wondering whether we could zoom in on the German national context for a moment. You wrote in February uh, that we might look back on this period and think of this being the beginning of the German decline. Why do you think that? Germany is an industrial society, still based on uh, traditional mechanical engineering, electrical engineering. Germany and the EU as a whole have kind of missed the digital revolution. You know, we still don't have no German digital giant. You know, I, I remember the statistic that in the first quarter of last year, the profits of Apple were as big as that of the entire European, you know, top 500 companies. But Germany has been living off the inventions of its past with great success. Uh, virtually all the, the technology companies that Germany has, all the big car companies, were based on innovations that happened partly in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And, and it can take a long, you know, countries can live off their past glories for a long time. I mean, just look at England and the UK. You know, they have, you know, they have been uh, doing this very successfully. And Germany is sort of in a similar phase, uh, still riding high, still having very strong growth. But what I see with, with Germany is a fairly long period of decline, uh, relative decline to China, to America. This is not the kind of decline that will be shocking. It's not the kind of decline that will you know, leave lots of people in unemployment. That, that won't happen. It, uh, but it will, it will not be enough to produce this, this growth that the Eurozone needs or for Germany to bankroll the rest of the Eurozone. That is a scenario that I don't think is very likely to happen. Now we're looking at, you know, we're coming into a, a new political phase. I mean, Merkel will leave office this year. Uh, this week, there's going to be an election or the first round of an election for a successor. These candidates for the CDU leadership, they do not stand for modernity. The narrative is very much based on, on old free market ideology. So I don't see in the German discussion many politicians in all the parties that actually have an agenda for a sort of a new growth agenda, with perhaps the exception of the Green Party, where at least there is an agenda for investment in certain climate change technologies and that part. There is at least something there. But in the traditional parties, both on the right and on the left, I see a, a relative lack of interest in the subject. And since the Greens are, at least this time around, not likely to be the senior government party, the economic policy will largely be set by the, the winner of the next election, which I suspect will be the CDU, CSU. And therefore, this election that we're going to have uh, on Friday, Saturday, the first round, 
will be uh, actually quite important. So of those three men who are running to be the new leader of the CDU, what are the main things to remember about each of them? Well, let's start with Armin Laschet, who was the prime minister for Northern Westphalia, which is Germany's largest state. He is a centrist. And, you know, I was referred to him as the coal guy because he has been very difficult in the recent discussions that took place in Germany on how to extricate yourself from, the, from reliance on coal for energy. And they came up with a compromise to phase out coal by the late 2030s. Uh, he just commissioned a coal-fired power station this year. I mean, this is you know, an astonishing uh, act of defiance of climate targets and climate policy. And it will be interesting that if he is elected, whether he can actually form a coalition with the Greens, because the Greens have a real problem with that. But he is a centrist. He is Angela Merkel's favorite. She's not intervening very strongly and vocally. I don't think she's calling anybody and you know uh, behind the scene, but she's made it clear that she favors him. He is sort of the continuity guy too. The other one is Friedrich Merz, who was the CDU leader in the Bundestag in the early 2000s. And he is a conservative, conservative libertarian. On Europe, not particularly interested. He would say that he's pro-European, but when he opens his mouth on Europe, we haven't heard anything that's intelligent. Like so many people, they have views on Europe, but they don't they don't know how it works. They don't they they I mean he recently suggested that Turkey should have the same relationship with the EU like that the UK has. Which if you think about it, that actually Turkey has technically a deeper relationship now because it has a customs union. You know, I don't think he understands it very well. The third man is Norbert Rutgen, who understands that debate very well. He's a transatlanticist, which is quite rare in Germany these days. And he is certainly a voice that wants to push Germany stronger into the EU, stronger into NATO. He's much more open to European joint projects. But he, is not, he has no designs for the economy. So he's not somebody who I would count on providing leadership on the Eurozone. Now, some people have expressed the hope that with Macron in Paris and with the Rutgen in Germany, that would be sort of the ideal combination for European reform, for, for Eurozone reform. That is a possibility. You can't, one can't rule it out, except that, that I've never heard Rutgen speak coherently on the monetary union. In many ways, he's untested. And the reason we're all skeptical about him, or, we, or some people are skeptical about him, we have to say, is that he was at one point a, a candidate in the state election in 2000, I think 2012. And, you know, he really blew it. You know, he, he ran one of the worst campaigns the CDU had ever run. While he has become more popular in the polls relative to the other two candidates, I don't think the CDU will choose him on Saturday because there's still the memories of, of a campaign that he lost. He's not demonstrated an ability to win an election, and the only election he did fight was one he lost. Laschet is not very popular in the population at large, but he has demonstrated an ability to win an election in Germany's largest state, which is you know, at least something. The, the question for delegates, and it's very hard to gauge what they will do because there's 1,001 of them. About a third are MPs and other representatives, and two-thirds are just ordinary party members, drawn at random. So it's very hard to say whether they are representative. I mean, some people, because it's an online vote, and there was a number of them, I think we heard about 50 of them, who didn't have internet. Uh, so they didn't know how to cast an online vote. And, you know, if that happens, you know, there is potential for something to go, go unexpected.
Thank you very much to Wolfgang for speaking to us today. If you'd like to hear more from him, then check out his podcast, which is relatively new. It's called the Euro Intelligence Podcast, and uh, they've got some great European analysis for Euro geeks like me. And me. Isolation inspiration time. What have you been watching or reading over the holidays, Dominic? Well, I have to admit that these last few weeks, um, I've been a little bit distracted uh, by events in that country with uh, stars and stripes and white nationalists. What a lovely summary of a country. So, yeah, I didn't do as much reading, listening or watching of European goodies as I would have liked. But one thing I did do is I ended up watching both seasons of Fleabag for a third time. Wow. And I know I've mentioned Fleabag before on this podcast, um, but I just want to repeat that I think it's one of the best TV shows I've ever seen Phoebe Waller-Bridge makes me laugh and cry um, very close to each other, which is really impressive considering I very rarely cry and even more (laughs) rarely laugh. The reason why I want to mention it again is because I discovered my in-laws hadn't seen it and I couldn't believe it. And I just wanted to reiterate that if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. And even if you have, watch it again. It it really survives well, uh, second or third viewing. And I should say the first two episodes of season one are not the best episodes. And I know a few people who were put off after those episodes, particularly because of that character with the big... Uh, teeth that makes it seem a bit more absurd than the rest of it is oh yeah that guy so maybe skip straight to episode three if you've struggled with that before and season two is perfection so yeah it's british and i'm british and katie's british and i'm a bit self-conscious about recommending too many british things on a european show but actually britain's been going through the ringer lately and i feel like the least i can do is remind my fellow brits uh, that the country produces some pretty stonkingly great tv and art in general it's true talking of british things we need to talk about bridgerton <laughs> we need to talk about bridgerton we do katie <laughs> It is trash. It is brilliant. Uh, I think it's a completely great antidote to the state of the world right now. Uh, Yeah, 19th century British aristocrats having loads of sex. It's really bad for your brain and I recommend it. It's on Netflix. Yeah, if you've not heard of it, then it's basically a mix of Gossip Girl meets Pride and Prejudice. And it's got Julie Andrews doing the voiceover, who I think is totally brilliant. But other than Julie Andrews, I think most of the acting is pretty atrocious. Doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter. Watch it. It's Shonda Rhimes stepping into the world of Jane Austen. It's brilliant. Have you watched anything else or enjoyed anything else over the holidays? Well, I thought I'd take a leaf out of your book, Dominic, uh, and recommend a series, another series that was cool three or four years ago. Um, I've been watching The Bureau or the uh, Le Bureau des Légendes, to give its uh, French title. It is a TV series about secret agents working for French intelligence in Syria and Algeria. And it's just really good. I always love stuff about sort of murky French foreign policy anyway. But it's really well paced. It's well acted. Uh, it stars Mathieu Katowicz, who I don't know if you've ever seen Amelie, that film from many, many moons ago. He was mm. the love interest in that. And I've been wanting to watch the series for ages because I work in a French office and lots of French dads in the office would talk about how great the series was. And that's a demographic that watches a lot of television. So I really trust their opinions. Sounds good. Is it on Netflix? Uh, it's on a few different streaming platforms. I don't think it's on Netflix, but it is on a few others around Europe. Weirdly, I would say it's almost as calming as Bridgerton. 
even though it's completely different. Um, Bridgerton was enjoyable because it was just complete escapism trash. Uh, the Bureau is good because it makes me really glad that I'm not a spy and that I don't have to deal with this incredibly stressful double life. This sounds like something for me. I'm going to give it a go. Happy ending time. Now, this is a story that some people might have seen over the Christmas period, but it was too good not to mention. Um, I first saw it on our Patreon Facebook group posted by Greta. Thanks for sharing. It is the news that archaeologists have uncovered Thermopolium in or Thermopolium in Pompeii. Do you know what? Thermopolium is, Katie. I do, having read that story, but tell me anyway. It's a fast food joint. And now, as you all probably know, Pompeii was a Roman city that was destroyed after a huge volcanic eruption almost 2,000 years ago, with the city ending up covered in a thick layer of ash, which must have been pretty hellish at the time, but did preserve the city very well, making it a uniquely rich site for archaeologists feels a bit bleak to like celebrate (laughs) the fact that it's been so perfectly preserved for archaeologists (laughs) when so many people died in such a horrific way Mm. but have you seen the photos katie then if you read the article yeah and it's amazing and i've really enjoyed reading about uh ancient fast food fast food being a topic that's very close to my heart especially now that i'm on a diet i mean it really looks like what you'd expect when someone said like there was an ancient roman fast food restaurant uh and there are nice paintings perfectly preserved paintings of animals on the side of the counter in brilliant vibrant condition um what kind of stuff were they serving in there they think that the animals painted on the counter were animals that were also served so in that case it would be ducks and chicken but they also found traces of fish snails and beef in the jars and containers behind the counter not many vegan options no sadly not i find it pretty amazing that they are still uncovering things in pompeii and apparently there's still about a third of the site yet to be excavated so who knows what they'll find maybe they'll find a roman coffee shop that sells weed maybe they will can you think of a good name for a Roman fast food restaurant? Oh, um... I was thinking VFC, Volcanic Fried Chicken. That's in really bad taste. Too soon? Ah, <laughs> oh, it's nice to be back, isn't it, Dominic? It's very nice to be back. And uh, we've got a new editor. Now, producer Katz Laszlo is also editing. So thank you, Katz, for editing this first episode of the year. Thanks, Katz. We'll be back next week with more stories from across the continent. Meanwhile, you can find us on social media, Twitter, at EuropeansPod. We've not been blocked, unlike some other people this week. (laughs) Facebook, Europeans Podcast. Instagram, Europeans Podcast. Is that right? Yeah. I've forgotten them. And you can send us an email, hello at europeanspodcast.com. See you next week, everyone. See us. How do. (laughs) 